Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 286 with Whitney Johnson. This one's a lot of fun. Whitney is talking about your learning curve and disrupting it and thinking about where others fall on their learning curves and how it all comes together in a beautiful recipe for you staying engaged and not bored and teams getting good ideas flowing and so much more. So you'll learn one, how to optimize each stage of learning. Two, the three key stages of your learning curve. And three, the importance of hiring the right boss. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F286. Now, here is Whitney's story. Whitney Johnson is a CEO advisor and frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and she has over a million followers on LinkedIn. She's the author of the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, and she's an award-winning Wall Street analyst who co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton Christensen. She is a frequent keynote speaker on disruption and has been recognized as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50 and Fortune. She also hosts the weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast and is an original cohort member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. Her latest book is called Build an A-Team. I would prefer to be the Mr. T figure on an A-Team personally. And so we're going to hear about that and so much more. So big thanks to Whitney for hanging out with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Working remotely can be a challenge, especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is Whitney. Whitney, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you, Pete. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, me too. Well, I think we're getting some really good stuff. But first, I wanted to go back in time a little bit and hear in uh, an earlier part of your career, you were a winning, outperforming stock picker. How'd you do it? That's such a good question. I think the way I did it, I mean, you have to build your financial models and you have to come up with your projections of what you think a company is going to be able to do in the future. But there's an element of stock picking that's actually very intuitive. And the way I I found that stocks, I mean, when I was analyzing them and studying them every single day of what they were doing, it's almost like they had a personality. One of the elements, at least for me, of being a good stock picker was, sure, I had to have the numbers, but also being able to analyze management, what I thought management would do, how they were thinking about the world, what was motivating them, and then also watching the stock and just getting a sense for when there might be momentum shifting either up or down. So I think a good stock picker has this element of 
being able to do the analytical work, but there's also an intuitive, there's a left brain, right brain aspect to, to stock picking. Oh, that's intriguing. And you know, one of these days, my dream is, because I've seen that there's numbers and numbers of studies that show that certain kind of good people practices are linked to exceptional or beyond normal up stock performance measures. If, if you look at, um, maybe good to grade or, or any number of those sort of studies that are out there. So part of me thought one day, I think it'd be really cool to start strategy in which I'm trying to snag undervalued stocks based upon having brilliant uh, people and culture things in play, because it's like, those are not readily quantified, reported, sent to the SEC and digested by by day traders the world over. So fascinating. Someday. I love it. Yeah. 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 It's worth doing. Cool. So well, maybe I'll pick your brain when that day comes. But because you've made a leap here into more of the realm of people and, and learning and development. And and you talk a lot about uh, disrupting and disruption. Could you orient us a little bit? What do you mean by those words. I'm glad that you asked that question because I think so many of us hear those words and we all think different things depending on who we are and the experience that we've had. So at its simplest, a disruptor and in terms of disruptive innovation is a silly little thing that takes over the world. So quick examples are the telephone that took over the telegraph, the light bulb, the gas lamp. More recently, Toyota disrupted General Motors, Netflix, Blockbuster, and then Uber has disrupted yellow cabs. And it has a very specific framework. So the disruptor gets a foothold at the low end of the market. And think about like Toyota in the 60s. And at the very outset, the its position is weak and their product is inferior. And at that point in time, a General Motors could have literally crushed them like, like a cockroach. But they didn't because market leaders rarely bother because for them, it's just a silly little thing. The margins are low. It's inconsequential. Why should we bother? Let's just go after bigger, faster, better. And in the case of General Motors, it was Cadillac. The bad news for General Motors, of course, and then the good news, depending on your point of view, if you were Toyota, is that once you've got that foothold, you're motivated also by bigger, faster, better Lexus. And so that's what disruption looks like. At its simplest, it's low end, eventually moves up market and upends its better resourced, at least early on competitor. And so when you talk about an individual being a disruptor or disruptive or causing disruption, what does that mean? Personal disruption is how you take these ideas and make them meaningful to you. And that this was the big aha that I had when I was working in as an investor. I had co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. And we were applying this theory of disruption to investing and to products and services. And the big aha, the big insight that I had was that this framework actually applied to people. What it looks like for a person is think of a ladder. So you start at the bottom of a ladder, then you climb to the top of the ladder, and then you jump to the bottom of the next ladder, like the children's game shoots and ladders. And to give you an example of what that can look like for a person, because I think we talked about Toyota General Motors, but what does that look like for you personally? Well, Lady Gaga. So we all know Lady Gaga. Think about how in 2008, she starts at the bottom of a ladder. She goes straight to the top. And then for an encore, what does she do? 
Well, she jumps to the bottom of a new ladder. So think about that ladder. She collaborates with Tony Bennett on a jazz album. Then she does this Sound of Music tribute. Like, we're talking about Lady Gaga singing The Hills Are Alive. And then she produces a country album. And so you're like, well, hmm. But the jump, it obviously paid off because her performance at the Super Bowl last year had the largest music audience ever. So... That's what personal disruption looks like. The, the real snag for personal disruption, though, is that when you're at the top of the ladder and you make the decision to jump to the bottom of a new one, people oftentimes look at you like, what are you doing? Like, you're giving up all this stature, all this money, all this, all this notoriety. Why would you do this? And you do it because you believe that when you're willing to disrupt yourself, that what you will get in the future, um, that step back will turn out to be a slingshot forward for you. Well, and that's interesting because I'm thinking sometimes it works out great and sometimes it, it doesn't work out so great. I'm thinking about Oprah right now. And, and I don't know, maybe I'm just not in the know and the Oprah Winfrey Network is is rocking and rolling. But uh, it's for a while there, it seemed like she she was sort of, you know, struggling with, with the rankings and or the ratings, Nielsen stuff. And uh, and it's just sort of hanging out. And whereas before, you know, she she was the Oprah with right. rocking and rolling. Right. So, well, I guess time will tell what unfolds there. Or maybe um, Michael Jordan and uh, baseball. Yeah, Pete, you make a really good point. And I think one of the one of the important things to know about the theory of disruption is that the reason it's it's so so valuable is that the research says that your odds of success are going to be six times higher when you pursue a disruptive course and your revenue opportunity is going to be 20 times greater. The thing that is important to understand is that when your odds go up by six times, that's from 6% to 36%. Oh, there you so go. there's still a 64% chance that you're on the wrong curve. And so, so it means that lots of things that we're going to try are not going to work. That being said, your odds go up. And most importantly, no S-curve is ever wasted. Like we, no matter what S-curve or learning curve we're on, we're always learning something. So even if it turns out that this is not a, a learning curve that's going to work fabulously well, like perhaps the own network for Oprah or even Michael Jordan and baseball, it doesn't mean that he didn't learn some really valuable lessons and she didn't learn some really valuable lessons. So again, no S-curve or learning curve is ever wasted. Oh, that's great. You know, and I've seen that in terms of just my own business adventures in terms of, oh, you know, that didn't work out. I, I wasted some time and money on it. But, oh, wow, now, now I have these sort of extra resources, like great people to collaborate with, knowledge of, of platforms that I wouldn't have, have had or, you know, skills that get put over to another place. And it's, so it's, it's hard to regret even most of those failures. Especially when it's not about when you're able to separate out the the endeavor itself from you as a person, your, you know, the, the worth that you have as a person, when you can separate those two out, you really can say, wow, I did this thing and it didn't work, but look at everything I learned. And, and so it starts to just be this accumulation of knowledge and understanding and experience that allows you to move up the next curve that much more quickly. Well, let's talk about the, some learning curve stuff in your, your latest upcoming work, Build an A-Team. Uh, what's this book all about and why is it important right now? So my prior book called Disrupt Yourself, and we've kind of been alluding to it and talking about was this notion that we need to be willing to disrupt ourselves to jump from one learning curve to the next. And 
and so that your odds of success are higher. So one of the things that happened is that as I was talking to people, I would over and over and over again, have people say to me, okay, I get it. I got it. I got it. I want to disrupt myself, but how do I get my boss to let me disrupt myself? Because I really like the company that I'm working at. And how do I get the team, the people who are working for me to disrupt themselves? And so this book is a response to that. So whereas disrupt yourself was for you, how do you decide when it's time to try something new? And then how do you move up your learning curve seven point framework to do that? This is about, okay, how do you manage a team as a collection of S curves? And how do you use this framework to onboard people? How do you manage people when they're at the low end of their curve and the sweet spot at the high end? And then what do you do when it's time for them to jump to their next S curve with the idea that if your company is a collection of S curves, if you can manage the learning of each person on your team, you can actually optimize for innovation and avoid being disrupted. Mm -hmm. Well, you're using a lot of words I like there, optimizing and innovation and and learning. Oh yeah. (laughs) So let's dig in a little bit then. So uh, what are some key practices that make that that happen well in terms of some some do's and don'ts that you observe in the wild? Yeah, so I would say the first thing to think about is let's just talk about the S a little bit because I think for some of our listeners, because we've been talking a lot about the S curve, and I should say your listeners, they're, they're your listeners, they're your tribe. Oh, to be Thank sure you for them inviting now. me oh. in. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about this idea of an S, at the bottom of the S, it's the you're inexperienced, you don't know what you're doing. There's going to be six months to a year whenever you start anything new, a new role, a new project where time's going to pass, time's going to pass and it feels like nothing is happening. But then you put in the effort and you start to move up the knee of that S. And so that comes the back of the S where it's really, really steep. And so you start to feel really competent and confident and you're engaged. And then you get to the top and now you become a master. Yay, you're a master. But because you know how to do everything on your job, you start to get bored. Well, what you want to do as a manager is to have about 70% of your people at any given time in this sweet spot where they're engaged. They know enough, but not too much. You want to have 15% of your people at the low end where they're inexperienced, but they're also, because of that inexperience, asking lots of questions like, why do you do it like this? And if you can get over the fact that it feels kind of pesky because they're questioning the status quo, there are all sorts of nuggets of of discovery that can come with that person who's at the low end of the curve. So you want 15% of your people there. And then you also want 15% of your people at the high end of the curve who are on the top. Think of it, I'm talking about a curve, but also think of it as being on top of a mountain. There's this vista, there's this perspective that they have. They can also bring along the people who are at the bottom and the middle of the curve before they then jump to a, a new one. And so if you can optimize each of those respective stages of learning, it can allow you to be very innovative. And in fact, if you as an organization or a leader are trying to figure out if you're at risk of being disrupted, all you have to do is look at how many people are at the high end of the curve. Because if you've got too many people at the high end, that means they're getting bored. And bored people can either leave or worse, they get complacent. And bored and complacent people, they don't innovate, they get disrupted. I like that. So we've sort of laid out, hey, take a look at the the mix right there. And maybe... I think it'd be helpful as I guess in a way it really is a continuum as opposed to, you know, red, yellow, green, three firm, clear categories. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a continuum. But do you want it you want to dive into sort of how do you manage people along the different parts or what oh, yes. would be helpful? I'd like to go there in a moment. But first I guess I'd I'd like to say 
think I'm thinking about so folks are in there in their in their six months. They're like, yeah, I, I still kind of don't know what I'm doing, but I kind of do. I, I guess where would you place them in terms of the three segments, or or would you just say they're more like the new folk than they are the mid folk, and and just leave it at that? Or are there any kind of key? questions or, or indicators you look to and and do your categorizing? Yeah, love it. Great question. So one of the things that we have is we have what's called an S-curve locator. It's a tool that you can, if you actually go to my website at whitneyjohnson.com backslash diagnostic, you can download it and see where you are on your current learning curve. And if you wanted to, you could have everybody on your team download it and see where, where you are. What I would say is it's definitely a continuum but here's a quick rule of thumb. Typically, someone's going to be at the low end of the curve. If you're mapping against the 10,000 hour rule, for example, and working 40 hours a week, you're going to be there up until about the time that you're at six months. And that's going to be characterized by you coming home from work and saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. I feel very daunted by what's happening. And, and so that's how it's going to feel. And so you then go, okay, I know it's supposed to feel this way, so I'm not going to get discouraged. But at some point after, you know, from six to nine months, and it may be a year, depending on how prepared you were going into this new work, you're going to start moving into the sweet spot. And you'll be in the sweet spot for again, on average, two to three years, where at the low end of the sweet spot, you feel like you um, still know enough, but not quite enough. And at the high end of the sweet spot, you probably know a lot and perhaps almost too much. And then once you get to the top of the curve, that's going to be three to four years in a particular role. And you don't really want to be staying at that place for longer than six months to a year. And again, this is doing exactly the same thing. There's lots of different ways for you to extend out the sweet spot of the curve, but that's a basic rule of thumb. Well, that's really interesting because that seems to roughly correspond to what we're seeing with the the horizon in which people choose, you know, of their own volition to stick with a, a current role. Before they say, you know what? I think I'm going to move on now. Yeah. And you know, what's so fascinating, Pete, is that when people hear about this framework, they go, oh, that's why I move every three or four years because I was at the top of a learning curve and it helps them understand that they weren't just being flaky like, oh, I'm done with this job. They understood, oh, it's because my learning had peaked and I needed to do something new because I was getting bored. And in order for me to be most productive and most be able to contribute better to the organization, I needed to be able to leap to a new learning curve. Okay. All right. So let's say now we've got so three different segments. What are some some best practices within each of them? Yeah. Okay. I would say for people at the low end of the low end of the learning curve, you want to have a plan. I think there's this tendency to think that whenever you hire someone, that they're going to be there forever, and they're just not. We we subconsciously do that weird thing, and so you want to have a really clear plan of what you want them to do for their first month on the job, for their first six months on the job, for their two to three years on the job, knowing that three to four years from now they're going to jump assuming that they've been a good employee, going to jump to do something new. The second thing you want to do is to just let them do their job. I think sometimes when people are brand new, and for example, I know some of your listeners are fairly new managers, there's this tendency to want to micromanage it. And let me just tell you a quick story around that. There was this really talented high performer at Boeing who was promoted to be a manager. And a few months in, one of his direct reports, an engineer announced that he was quitting. And 
the engineers, you know, he's like, why are you quitting? Like you're doing such a good job. And the engineer said, well, it's because you're micromanaging me. You've made 14 changes to my work. Your job is not to do my job. Your job is to help me understand the bigger picture, to plug me into the network and to advocate for me. The employee still quit, but Alan Mulally, who went on to become the CEO of Ford, one of the best CEOs of our time apparently learned his lesson, I should say. And the third thing I would say for people at the low end is to recognize that they're going to be slow. And so sometimes you're going to say, oh, I wonder if I should have hired this person because they're not really quite delivering the way I wanted them to. Just recognize that they're going to be slow because they're low to the curve. And then remember that because they're not blind through familiarity, there are lots of things that they're going to see. Make sure you Before they start to get blind, make sure you ask them what their insights are and what suggestions that they have for you and how you might do things differently. So that's at the low end of the curve. I really like that. That that notion that that the new new folks have, because they don't know stuff, are a a rich source of innovation. And I guess I'm thinking about it sometimes. Sometimes when we've had folks like just, hey, clean our home. Sometimes like it's it's gotten beyond us. (laughs) We need a little help, task rabbit or something you know, on a number of occasions, it's sort of like, I behold sort of what they've done. And at times it's like, well, that's not where that goes. That goes over there. It's like, but you know what? It makes so much more sense to have it over here. And so- Exactly. (laughs) That's a great example. I love it. So yeah, that's good. At times it's sort of like, no, that's not where that goes for a reason. And I'm going to move it back here. And at other times, it's like you have sparked something really cool about how I should have been doing it all along. So that's cool to have that that flexibility, that humility to, to to roll with it. And then what about folks who are in the the midpoint or the sweet spot? People in the sweet spot, it's a really interesting place because they do are feeling really competent. And one of the things that's really interesting is when people are in the sweet spot, you start to then think of them as a high potential person. And fascinating research suggests that when people are high posed, we actually don't give them hard assignments because we're afraid that they'll fail. And so the most important thing you can do for your people in the sweet spot is to give them constraints, to give them friction, to press them and challenge them. Give them real stretch assignments where there's a real possibility of failure. And then the second thing I would say is because they are performing so well, make sure you appreciate them. Um, It's easy sometimes when people are at the low end or the high end, you're worried about them, et cetera, and you forget and ignore the, the people in the sweet spot. They're not a problem child, so don't make them one because you've ignored them. So that would be my advice for the people in the middle of the curve. Okay, very good. And those who are getting experienced. Yeah, so the people at the top of the curve, there are a couple of different things you want to do. First of all, the way that you can best leverage their experience is to give them, first of all, say to them, okay, you're at the top of the curve. I know you're getting bored. I need you to stay here for six months to a year in order to help set the pace for people at the loan of the curve, in order to convey the tribal memory. And also, we just need to get your perspective overall. So that's how you want to manage people at the top of the curve is give them a specific role that they need to play for your organization. And then you need to come to their aid. So AID, applaud what they've done. There, We tend to you know, memorialize birthdays and anniversaries and promotions, but whenever someone gets to the top of the curve, applaud and say to them, you know, look at what we've accomplished as a team because you were in this role. The second thing you want to do if you haven't already is to identify what they're going to do next. And then the third, the D, AID, is to deliver on the promise inherent in your contract that now that they've gotten to the top of the curve, they've delivered, they performed well, they've now 
set the pace for the people at the low end. You identify some new role, some new opportunity, some new project for them to do inside of their your organization so that they can continue to learn. And as they learn, yes, they may leave your team. And so there's a short-term loss for you, but you sub-optimize the present in order to optimize the future for them for and for your organization. It's interesting. I think in practice, well, I don't have any hard data on this. Maybe you do. But my gut sense is that most organizations don't do this. It's kind of like, well, this is the job and maybe there's not clear-cut opportunities for advancement or, or other roles to be snagged. And so then folks just kind of get tired of it and, and they leave of their own accord. What's your sense for uh, how well, the proportion of folks who are who are doing things optimally versus suboptimally? I think the the large percentage of people are doing it suboptimally. I mean, it's it's very difficult to do. And yet we know, I mean, and in fact, the data says it's difficult to do. I'm trying to find, oh yeah, okay. So I was looking in my notes. So let me just give you a quick study that would suggest that in fact, it's difficult to do. So Professor at Harvard Business School, Boris Groisberg, he does a survey every year. I think he's done it for about 10 years of small, medium-sized companies and asks them about sort of how they build a great company and to rate how effective they are at a number of different HR practices. And for the 450 companies they surveyed in 2017, job rotations, which is basically what we're talking about here, had the lowest with high potential programs having the third lowest. So the key to maintaining this innovative workforce, they were the lowest and the third lowest. So, and he said, this is not unusual. It's basically this way every single year. So if the organizations that are listening to this are struggling to do it, you're not alone. But to the organizations that are able to do it, like, for example, WD-40, who I talk about in my book, then you get things like engagement scores of 93%. And you know that when you've got high engagement scores, you've got higher operating margins, your ROIs, you're just, you're a more profitable company. And so there's a case to be made for it, but there are all sorts of psychological reasons why we don't. So anyway, long-winded answer to your question, but I think the answer, simple answer is very few do, more could, and um, would benefit from done so. Certainly. Well, well and that, that also, you know, we share that, those data that also makes me think of, you know, Corn Ferry had managers sort of self-assess where they fell on dif- all the competencies and developing others or, and direct reports was dead last, you know, of, of all of them that they could choose in the stack order ranking. So, so it is, it is challenging. So I'd like to zoom in then if you were the, the individual who is wishing, you know, you had some enlightened leaders taking care of you in this way, but, but aren't quite getting it. Uh, what's your advice for them? Yeah. So I would say you can't necessarily change your boss. I think there are a couple of things you can do. You can hire the right boss for you. And I think one of the ways you can figure out how to hire the right boss is before you take a job is to find out where are the people who have worked for this person in the past today? What are they doing? Have they been able to go on to more interesting and engaging roles inside of the organization? Have they gone outside of the organization with this person's blessing? Because I think one of the things that we overlook is the sometimes it's a good thing to help people leave and go to other organizations where they can become ambassadors, clients, et cetera, for your company. So I think that would be the first place I would start. The second place I would go is 
to you yourself. I think that if you can make it possible for the people who report to you to be able to learn and leap and repeat, you're going to find that the people who are reporting to you are much more engaged. They'll be all in. And when they're all in, when they're learning, you're going to ship more product. And then you're going to start to become a talent magnet and people are going to want to work for you and with you. And so then if it turns out that the boss that you have, that you happen to work for is not the talent magnet, then you're going to have the ability to move to other organizations over time. And I also want to get your take on, there are some employees who are not that interested, engaged, or motivated by learning. And they would kind of just rather sort of do their thing for a while with with minimal interruption and, and maybe effort. How do you think about working with this sort of profile in the mix? So with someone who just literally doesn't want to learn, is that what you're saying? They're just not excited. Yeah. And I mean, I think that you might call it less motivation or they would prefer just the, uh, a bit more of routine. I'm thinking of Jerry Gergich from Parks and Recreation right now, if you if you are could bring that to mind. He just likes his government job because he can get home to his wife and family at a, at a reasonable time. And, and that's that. <laughs> yeah. So it's such an interesting question. So I, I remember a few years ago, maybe two years ago, I was talking to a CEO of a company and he said, he said, 90% of my people don't have a learning curve. They just don't care. And, you know, I could really feel how he felt like he was really frustrated. And my response was, or my, I think it's just not true. I think everybody is on a learning curve. It's just so, because everybody has the will for something. So I think that when we have someone inside of an organization who is not performing well, I think there can be a couple things going on. I think sometimes they just don't want to work that hard, but that means that they're just, this is not the right learning curve for them. Because I think everybody's willing to work hard at something. Even if it's playing video games 10 hours a day, they're su- or watching football for 10 hours a day, there's something that they're willing to work hard at, but it might not be inside of your organization. So I think, and that's sometimes where you've just got to have those difficult conversations and say, this isn't the right learning curve for you because you're not excited about this particular curve. I do think sometimes that people are underperforming, not because they're not willing to work hard, but because they are on the wrong curve. Part of the reason that that happens is that we as human beings, because we overvalue what we're not good at, we sometimes get ourselves into the wrong roles because we worked hard at something. So therefore we should be in that role. When in fact, what we'd be really good at is that thing that we don't value because it's easy for us. And so a really great boss will be able to discern between the two. And when they discover that there's someone in the wrong role, and I I talk about this in the book about a woman named Jocelyn Wong, where she was at Procter & Gamble. She was an engineer. turns out she was not performing well. And it's not because she wasn't good. It's just that she was on the wrong curve. So they moved her into marketing and she's now been the CMO of Lowe's. Again, I think everybody has the will for something. It may not be the will for a learning curve inside of your company, but sometimes when people aren't performing, it's just that they're not on the right curve. All right. And if, again, if there's an individual who, who finds themselves, they're bored, and not sort of getting the the proactive attention from leadership to kind of craft new things. Do you have any tips for being proactive and, and, and how one might go about taking the initiative optimally to finding some new challenges within the current role? Yeah. Okay. So you're saying you're a little bit bored. Well, okay. So a couple of things. I would 
say, number one is you want to talk to your boss and, and say to them, and again, I understand that this might sometimes feel like tantamount to getting pushed off the curve, which also gives you information, right? If you can't go to your boss and say you're bored, then you're probably going to leave at some point anyway. So you may want to make the decision to be proactive. But I do think that there are opportunities for you. Once you say that, you can give yourself, you can create opportunities for yourself to stretch. And and one of the things I I recommend to my clients is to impose constraints because when you're getting bored, it's because you don't have enough challenge and challenge comes with friction and constraints represent friction. So they can include things like, okay, we've got a target of X for this year. We want to see if we can reach our target in 0.75 X or sorry, we want to reach our target in, you know, by September, not by December, or what could we do if we had half the marketing budget or what would we have to do if we only had half the people? And so start to really push yourself to be effective by constraining your resources and see what that can bring about. But again, I think that that can at some level feel like busy work. You're really best off by having that conversation with your boss and or taking on interesting projects inside of the organization that engage you and challenge you, which in a very, very large organization, you certainly have the option of doing. If you're at a small organization, you can start a side hustle and see what what happens there. But I think in that instance, you're basically saying, okay, this S curve I'm not I'm on isn't fulfilling me. And for whatever reason, I'm not ready to jump to a new curve. It might be a financial concern. So I'm going to start a side hustle, start my own S-curve over here and see what comes of that. All right. Thank you. Well, Whitney, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? Yeah. I, I think the only other comment I would make is that I think whenever you're thinking about disrupting and this idea of learning and leaping and repeating and allowing, taking of disrupting yourself in terms of how you're managing your workforce or your team is always remember that when because you're creating a new market, you're creating a new way of doing things. If it's, it's going to be scary and lonely. So if you're feeling scared and if you're feeling lonely as you're pursuing this, you're actually on the right path to disruption. That's good. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes is rings and jewels are, but apologies for gifts. I'm paraphrasing. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson, but the only true gift, the only true gift is a portion of thyself. I really, really love that quote. And it's very meaningful for me. And so whenever we think about ourselves in the workplace or really any endeavor that we're pursuing, I think it's always important, at least for me to find some way to bring myself into that, to really show up in some way, whether it's professionally or personally. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or a bit of research? Yeah. So I read the Undoing Project not too long ago, and I talk about it a little bit in this next book. I, I just, I'm fascinated by this idea of behavioral economics and and how sometimes when we want to encourage people to do something, we talk a lot about the the carrot. But I think that when it comes to motivating ourselves, the, the stick is not to be overlooked. And so I, I think that, that that for me was really powerful. If it's Sometimes we need to just prod ourselves by saying, okay, here are all the bad things that are going to happen to you if you don't do this new thing. Because we want to be positive, but sometimes we're actually more motivated if we can tell ourselves that it won't be good if we don't do this. Have you applied this in your own goal pursuits? Yes, absolutely. I have. Do you want an example? Oh, please do. 
Okay. So a few, oh, I don't know, probably a year or two ago, I had gotten off of a webinar and I was, I just wasn't very good. You know, you know how you have times you're just not very good. And afterwards I was like, oh, I wasn't very good. And I was psyching myself up about how good I was going to be. And my husband, spouses and partners are often truth tellers. He's like, don't you get it? Like, you need to tell yourself like how bad it's going to be. And if you tell yourself how bad it's going to be, then you'll prepare. And I was like, really? He's right. He's right. And so now when I'm trying to prepare to give a speech or prepare to do a podcast like with you, instead of saying to myself, this is going to be great, I'll say, okay, if you don't prepare, if you don't take a look at, like, think about what you're going to do beforehand, it's going to be bad. Then it motivates me actually to act. So powerful research to me. Oh, good. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Oh, I am reading Brandon Sanderson. Do you know him at all? He's a fantasy writer. He writes fantasy and he wrote this book called The Way of Kings. And he's just the most fantastic storyteller. Like if you ever read Ender's Game, he like takes Ender's Game um, to the, you know, the exponential power. Like he's just that good. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Headspace app, hands down. It's so good. It's really good. Did you have him as a guest on your show? I haven't. But uh, I've got, we have a guest coming up who's on the uh, the Simple Habit app, you know, what he's coming on. And Andy, yeah, he's on the list. So maybe someday it, it yeah. could happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, you could do the live meditation. Anyway, yeah, that, that app's been, I'm up to like 900 minutes and it's really, it's really made a difference for me. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. In fact, I have recommended it to a number of people. Yeah. And we say the difference, what difference does it make for you? I think that when, so I tend to get anxious or worried about like all the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 things that I need to do in the next hour or two hours. And so I think the Headspace app has helped me say to myself, okay, that's just a thought. Just focus on what you have to do right now. Write it down. You can come back to it. So just be much more aware of the of the chatter in my head and to kind of calm that chatter down. And so I found it very helpful for that. Oh, very good. Thank you. And how about a particular nugget you share that really seems to resonate with folks? They nod, they Kindle book highlight, they, they quote you back to yourself. What is something you share that really seems to connect? So one is the, if it's scary and lonely, you're on the right path. Another one that people really resonate with is that shame limits disruption, not failure. I think sometimes people conflate the two and failure and shame are two different things, but we conflate them. And so when I say to people, shame limits disruption, not failure, I think that that's really resonant. And then I would also say that this idea, which I mentioned earlier, is that if you want to know if you're, you as an organization are about to be disrupted, just take the pulse of your workforce. I think that's really powerful for people like, oh, right. Like, I don't need to just like, worry that I'm getting disrupted. I just need to figure out where my people are. And if I've got too many people that are getting bored, I'm going to be at risk because they're dialing it in. And so that's really helpful for people as well. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? As I mentioned earlier, you can go to my website to whitneyjohnson.com backslash diagnostic if you want to take this S-curve locator. So the, the best way is to find me at whitneyjohnson.com. You can email me at wj at whitneyjohnson.com or on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I do. I suspect that as you were listening to Pete and I talk, you had an idea, one or two or three ideas, some insight. And so I would encourage you to 
write that insight down now, like this very second, pull over your car and write it down and then act on it in the next two hours. That would be my challenge. Beautiful. All right. Well, Whitney, thanks so much for taking this time. I wish you lots of luck with the book and and all sorts of, of happy disruptions and A-team building in your future. Thank you very much, Pete. I appreciate it. I really appreciated Whitney's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really appreciate Whitney's recurring theme here associated with there are benefits to proactively and courageously disrupting yourself before some other force you know, comes in and puts you at risk. And it's so common, I think, to fall to the default mode, the default setting of just continuing to do what it is that you're already doing right now. It seems like there's less risk and a higher odds of success by doing that. But in fact, her research shows otherwise. So I think that's really encouraging if you're considering making a bold move to find that extra inspiration and courage right then and there from Whitney. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F286. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. We got Emily and Kathleen from Being Boss coming to chat with us. I know a few listeners are a fan of that show. Well, we are merging forces. So until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.